Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. In the spring, I teach a course called Tech, Media, and Democracy that is a partnership of faculty at NYU, Cornell Tech, CUNY's Queens College, the New School, and Columbia Journalism School. We host a range of expert speakers on issues at the intersection of those topics, and graduate students in journalism, information science, computer science, media studies, and design collaborate to produce prototypes and investigations. A couple of weeks ago, we hosted Peter Pomerantsev, an author and researcher who is concerned with propaganda, polarization, and how we come to understand the world around us. Emily Bell, director of the Tau Center at Columbia and one of the faculty on the course, led the discussion, which ranges from topics including the information component of the war in Ukraine to the tension between democracy and authoritarianism to the role of journalism and technology in shaping public discourse. This recording of the conversation has been edited for brevity. Here's Emily Bell. Peter, good evening. Great to see you. Tell us what you're doing at uh, the, is it Washington International Airport that you're at tonight? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm far cooler than that. I'm at the Baltimore International Airport. I just taught my class uh, at Hopkins and now I was very lucky. I found a 9 p.m. flight that's going to take me to London. Then hopefully I'll make flight to Warsaw, then I jump in a car and drive across the border into Ukraine onto a night train in Lviv. And Wednesday morning, I will be in Kiev in time for a conference about strategic communications, propaganda, um, and all the sorts of things we'll be talking about today. You make it over there quite a bit. So since since the invasion last year, you say that you've been going on a very regular basis. Yeah, I go once, sometimes even twice a month, um, but at least once a month. And I, I, I've got some really strong sleeping pills that my doctor has given me. And without that, I'd be a broken man. Yes. So tell us a bit about, because um, I really want to hear about what you're going to be discussing in terms of stratcoms and propaganda, but tell us a little bit about your impressions from really being in constant communication there, and also maybe incorporate a little bit about your own personal backgrounds and how you're tied to the region and what your perspectives have been on the past year, because I think we get, obviously, a very extruded version of it if we're just consuming it through US media, which I think is, is less engaged uh, than European media. Well, that's in- interesting. I mean, I, I actually think that, but, well, I'll do that question last. So, so, so I was born in Kiev to two parents who are Jewish-Ukrainian. And in the Soviet Union, you defined your ethnicity in your passport. So whether you were Jewish or Ukrainian or something that was in your passport. And most of my family is Jewish. I don't have a couple of people who define themselves as Ukrainian. But uh, born there, and then we emigrated or where we were exiled in, in 1978 when I was nine months old. So I only really had time to throw up over the Soviet Union. And then my parents were out of there. And I ended up growing up in London because my dad got a job at the BBC world service. Um, so I'm accidentally British and now have been in America like one and a half years. Actually, most of my family shares, so, so, so it's not that huge a move for me because most Soviet Jews who left the Soviet Union ended up in America or Israel. So, so, but my background, professionally speaking, is that I spent, after university, I spent nine years in Moscow uh, working in TV. I, I, I actually went to film school in Moscow as well, and I thought I'd be a great RT film director, and then like most people go to film school, ended up making reality shows. 
and you know docs about like kids with five heads and sort of stuff that you do when you work in tv but that gave me a chance to look at the russian media system from the inside and and i saw the birth of this new type of authoritarianism which was really reinventing propaganda now it's all over the world you see it everywhere from hungary to brazil to india but but russia was a pioneer and i got to describe it in my first book nothing is true and everything is possible and that was kind of a moment where I twigged where actually I was not a very good TV producer. I was actually quite crap at it. Um, but I was an okay writer. And actually what I was fascinated by intellectually was was the connection between media and democracy, essentially, and information democracy. And why the question that haunted me as I was making TV shows and documentaries and all the sort of things like, why is this any good society? What impacts is it having to change anything? Um, am I just getting ratings? Um, in a system like Putin's, I wasn't making political stuff at all. I mean, it was very far from that, but even the entertainment stuff I was making was the road of that. Then I came back to Britain, still working in TV. So constantly as I worked in the industry going, okay, what does this mean for society? And then it's quite a natural sidestep, you know, almost to see myself from the side and move into academia and to ask those questions in academia. And, and then ask the next question, which is the question that I, I sort of have started asking myself since 2014, which is, okay, how do we create journalism that journalism in the broadest sense of the world media and communications that is good for democracy you know when is a documentary good for democracy when is a reality show good for democracy when is the way we frame news agendas good for democracy how do we start researching that so the last few years at the lsc and now opkins i've been trialing really small boutique experiments in trying to understand that put journalists and sociologists together trying to work out you know how you overcome polarization if that's something you want to overcome how do you reach audiences who might be impervious to the facts, who might be under the sway of conspiracy theories and, and other malign effects? The war has kind of actually, in many ways, sort of turbocharged uh, my activity into reality. So, so since the war started, I've set up uh, one and a half NGOs. Uh, one of them looks at war crimes in Ukraine, but really thinks about the connection between truth and holding power accountable to the truth. So we research war crimes, we do stories around war crimes, and then we connect journalists or lawyers to start building cases and what we're trying to do in a very experimental way is really try to think about how do we make the truth part of a process of justice and how do we make justice a part of establishing truth so 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 that's one thing i've been doing another thing that i'm thinking about a lot and uh i can talk about maybe in very general terms is thinking about how do we um engage russian audiences um, there's lots of initiatives around there. I've been doing a lot of sociology, a lot of polling, uh, a lot of innovative polling because it's hard to do research dictatorship, but really thinking how are we going to start engaging the Russian population? And what, what does it mean to engage a population in a time of war? Um, is it really about converting them or persuading them that, that Putin has done a bad thing, that, you know, that they're, they're, they're complicit in, in the war crimes of their country or what is actually the role of communication in the time of war? Does does it change? And does, does uh, should we be doing something else? So that's, I mean, that's a great point to pick up on, which is that big question. And the question that you tackle at Agora as well, which is how do we actually do things that move the dial on this, uh, on schisms in society? So just, let's just stick with um, Russia and Ukraine for, for a moment. Have you seen, with the, there's, I think there's a lot to talk about in terms of modern propaganda and what the perceptions of that conflict are from the outside, who is winning the information war, for want of a better phrase. But just in terms of 
that question that you asked about what what can we do to engage Russian audiences or any audiences that need some kind of persuasion or or rooting back in reality. Do you have any thoughts about is that possible? Do you think with Russia at the moment? What's your understanding of how things are there? There's not a lot of independent media that's actually in the uh, allowed at the moment in Russia, but obviously there are populations who are constantly looking for and interested in finding other sources of information. So yeah, so so according to the polling that that, that I've seen, there's around sixty percent of people who 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 are unsatisfied with the media or not, um, but only seventeen percent of them follow the current independent media. So I don't think that's a purely question of censorship. I think a little bit like in America, they perceive the independent media as being elitist, as being too politicized, as not uh, having their back, as not being interested in them and preaching to them. That's something we found in studies across the world. There's a lot of research in Hungary, doing a lot of research in the US now. There's also the question of not just the supply, but the, the demand. People don't necessarily feel that they're, the media, the independent media they're being given is the one that they want. So even though, well, I mean, depends what how you believe, but let's say around 60% of Russians want something outside of the state media diet that they're given. Neither are they drawn to the independent stuff. So it's not purely a case of, of, of censorship. The censorship might, I'm sure, have plays a role as well. So I suppose the question then becomes, how do you reach this 40%? How do you reach the 40% who are maybe not the kind of like classic liberal audience, but who are unsatisfied with the dictatorial diet? What interests them? When do they feel that they're being listened to, that their concerns are being addressed? And, and then you get into very difficult choices because we want to scream at them, you're committing war crimes in Mariupol. That might not be what they're ready to hear. So if you ever want to get to, can you please face the reality of what you're doing in Mariupol? Mariupol is a town that's been bombed to smithereens by, by Moscow. Maybe you start somewhere else. And that's a very kind of audience-first approach, which, which, which I think, in a, in a context like Russia's reaches uh, an intensity, but 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 really is, is, is I think what a lot of people are finding when, when we think about America. I mean, our mutual friend Jeff Jarvis. For all my differences with him, I think on this we're completely aligned. That you know, if you want, stop talking about the audience being bad or wrong or stupid or, or zombified. Think about how you're going to reach them. So no, the polling shows that you can reach them. Sadly, it won't be with lectures on the virtues of liberal democracy. It'll probably be about something else, something that they really care about. It might well be, you know, consumer price shows about how the quality of sausages is going down, and then going, well, you realise the quality of sausages is going down because you started a bloody war. But you probably start with sausages. You don't start with Mariupol. How much moonlight? Right. And tell me about. I was reading actually on Justin's excellent. Tech Policy Press earlier this week, Josh Tucker wrote a piece, uh, another NYU professor, about on balance how the information war has progressed in the past year and said that there is a an assumption in the West that everything we see suggests that Ukraine has really done an incredible job of keeping people uh, very much focused on it and supporting it. But that's a very Americentric view. When you when you step outside that, it's not clear that Russia is necessarily suffering in the rest of the world, and that uh, this is a you know th- this, if you like, is a is an open question. Is that what do you think about that? Have you have you been thinking about sort of what the what the optics are at the moment and what the stakes are in terms of in terms of those optics? 
definitely have. I haven't been super focused on that because there's a lot of people doing that. And you know, this war has been so hectic. I've really been thinking about where I can add the most value myself. But there are a lot of people doing that. And I talk to them a lot. And, and on my, in this trip to Kiev, I think most of the discussion will be about that. So I actually still think would frame it in terms of progress. I still think Russia's, can we swear? Yeah. Yeah, Russia fucked up. Russia fucked up. So even, you know, you're going to say, you where they were starting from in Latin America. Again, I don't like this idea of Latin America. In certain countries in Latin America, support for Russia was super high. In certain countries in Africa and the Middle East, support for Russia was super high. It has actually, in places where it was always super high because of historical reasons, for example, friendship with the Soviet Union, because of Russia's investment in those regions, because they're, you know, probably quite justified anti, anti, you know, post-colonial and, and anti-Western sentiments for all, Russia actually had a huge advantage. So even though things they have probably still look awful, where people are on the fence or they're debating where they are, or it's a bit mixed, I actually think even there, there's some progress in the right direction. For example, a lot of countries actually in Africa and the Middle East have a very transactional relationship with Russia. I think the idea of the stuff that's going on in Europe is, you know, moral or existential. They just see a bunch of Europeans fighting each other. But they did have an image of Russia as a security guarantor. Yeah, Russia was going to provide them weapons, what that Russia was going to provide them mercenaries, energy, and, and they saw Russia as a useful kind of hedge between America and China. Russia's disasters on the battlefield have not gone unnoticed. The fact that Russia is pulling out troops out of Syria and from other places has not gone unnoticed. So, I mean, Russia's done an am- amazing job in, especially in the Syrian conflict, in showing that it is just, it's sort of like this hard man of the world. That, turn up and, and sort out your problems. If you're a dictator in trouble, you know, it's like, it's not the A team, it's like the dictator team, call the D team. And, and Putin will turn up with, 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 with like some troll farms and some mercenaries and some nuclear deals and some, you know, cash bailouts. They've been cultivating that image really, really, really successfully over the last 20 years. Suddenly they're like, okay, you start stupid wars. You clearly haven't worked this out. You've clearly lost in the battlefield. What's going on? So again, India, another country that's classically seen Russia as an ally, definitely wants to say, uh, uh, any Western imbroglio does definitely doesn't trust the US. It's interesting looking at polling. So it's, it's, it's evenly matched. It's like 70% Indians pro-Russian because of geopolitics, because they've always seen Russia as a partner. 17%, don't quote me on these numbers, still around 17% are like Ukraine because of the story, because they, they sympathize with Ukraine and the rest are in the middle. So you've got to understand that in a lot of places, Russia was at a really, really strong point. So even there, I think there's some question marks. I don't think it's one in those areas. But it's definitely not losing because they were always winning there. I mean, those were their allies and their partners and their and their and their friends, friends for convenience. Often, you know, I wouldn't romanticize the relationship, uh, but for a lot of African dictatorships, for a lot of Latin American regimes, Russia was a, a useful partner. So when we talk about propaganda, we set up a spreadsheet just logging all of the various changes to communications infrastructure rules, censorship, etc. That that started sort of. Tra- tracking from the um, day of the invasion. And I think we've got about 500 lines or something um, of it so far. We saw things, I think, in the first few months of the war that we hadn't seen before, like, for instance, the European Union saying we're going to take uh, RT off all of our transponders. You know, if you have a European Union transponder, you can't carry this kind of thing. So, Reflecting on some of that activity, what have we learned? Because it's a, you know, it, part of modern warfare is obviously the information war. It moves during every conflict. You have very online populations um, on both sides of the divide here. 
So is there anything that we've learned from the official reaction to it, from the, the, the journalism it's produced and from the activities of, of the propagandists? It's always evolving and it's evolving with the tech. And, and often the best way to look is at what are the marketing companies do it? And you'll see this, this takes to it a little bit later. Like it's one technology they're exploiting. So that's, um, you know, that's probably sort of evolving in line with that. I'd, I'd actually point in a different direction this time. I mean, all those things that we've been studying since 2016, which, you know, what's happening on Twitter, what's happening on, I feel like I spent so much of my time on Discord at one point. It's really into Discord, researching that, you know, what Discord is, it's a gaming site. And, you know, we spent so much time looking at the technology of tech, how do we regulate it? That all now feels like the sort of like the little cartoons before the feature presentation in the movie theater. I don't know if everybody understands that metaphor, but when you go to the movies, you have all these ads and then maybe a little cartoon and then the feature presentation. And now Russia's doing a feature presentation, which is much bigger. And in the sense that, yes, there's Russian stuff on Facebook saying that, you know, a war, you know, an atrocity didn't take place on the stage like they did in Syria. But much more than that, they're saying, oh, yeah, we're doing this and we're going to get away with it. Oh, you can put everything on your Google archive and we will get away with it. What they're kind of saying is like, and much more kind of bullshit way is, oh, we're going to do it, and it doesn't matter. We're here to overturn the connection between information and, I don't hate this term, the world order, but definitely between information and justice. We have more evidence and documentation than ever before of war crimes. We already had this in Syria. We have even more than in Syria now. The more we have, the less it seems to matter in some, in some strange way. That's the tension we're in. Let's say we collect all this evidence. Let's say we, you know, we, 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 we have all these tribunals. And it doesn't matter because it's a world where Russia and China get to set the rules and it just doesn't matter. That's what they're going for. I hope they fail, but they, they, they sort of up the stakes from troll farms on Facebook. They're really sort of going to the end of their logic. I mean, one of the many wars that are happening, and there's many wars happening in Ukraine at the same time, you know, there's, there's uh, a colonial war, you know, Russia's rebellion against the world order. There's, there's so many conflicts happening at the same time, but, but one of them is about and the one that I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm really fascinated by is, is the one between can evidence and truth mean anything? And we could think of that war as its own war, you know, it just had a huge war around COVID. COVID was, it was already this huge kind of you know, battle between, you know, do truth and evidence matter when it's people's health at stake? Um, and, and we found out that, it, it, you know, sometimes people will, will take evidence-free decisions even when their health is at stake. You know, it's quite incredible, really. And, and Russia's taking it even further. So maybe we should, maybe we should write this, this, this book, Justin, Emily, everyone else, uh, the war against reality, but not the way I did it, which was a series of tactical skirmishes, but maybe there's a grand narrative here that we're missing. Um, you know, this escalation of just saying, fuck the facts. And again, Russia is just taking it to a new level. It does. I think, I think that's a really interesting point. I've been reading some of the Dominion depositions today, which is the, lawsuit against Fox News brought by part of, part of the story part of the I saw I saw that connection as well when I was like okay this is part of the same the same dynamic right what really matters oh no yes. maybe I should write this so, so it's, it's, it's very good it's like it's like workshopping books during class but I, I but I think I think it's because I've been thinking about it as you know almost like the end of shame but you're right it's not actually about the end of shame it's something much bigger than that which is if you can perpetrate these things and get away with them. So if you can sit in Rupert Murdoch's position and the deposition, deposition papers that came out today, 
showed that he, as the head of Fox News, knew full well that what was going on on his channel in terms of saying there was voter fraud was not true. Just to, And there was no ambiguity about it. And there's a wonderful, I don't know, horrible phrase that he uses where he says it's not the blue, it's not the blue, it's not the red, it's the green. So in other words, it just means money. So it's not really a political thing. It's an, it's an apolitical thing. In he that, said that. He said yeah, that. Yeah. It's my, it's now, it's now, uh, it just, uh, you couldn't make it up as a succession script writer. I know what you're saying. It's such That's an amazing, it's such an amazing, it's such an amazing phrase. It's not the blue, it's not the red, it's the green. So in that world, and we're talking about the role of journalism in democracy, one of the things that haunts me teaching journalists is what difference can we make? What are we doing here? What, what, what's the role, not just of journalists, we've also got technologists and sociologists in this class are all thinking, you know, what, is there any point when you get these really significant, as you say, main presentation features? And the point of them is to essentially say your existence as a professional who stands against these things doesn't matter. What, what is it that we can and should be doing? I mean, that, that's exactly the crisis I, I kind of threw me into, into the sort of like the sewer between policy and academia where I now dwell. Um, and out of, you know, I still, I still write books, I still write articles, but, but, you know, I used to never leave an editing suite. So it's really trying to make sense of what the hell are we doing? Yeah. I mean, so many fundamental questions are being challenged. I think what we've got to do is throw out some bad metaphors that we lived by, that were mythical, the marketplace of ideas, the truth will, will save us or truth can speak you know you can speak truth to power we had our own cliches that we worked in and that what we just had as, as assumptions which which blatantly were never really corroborated and were never thought through and and, and we just lived with them like you know you ask journalists what they're doing well yeah you know i find the truth and that's good and that changes things like does it i mean it is a a to to to, to misquote a boring german philosopher the structural disintegration of the public sphere that we're talking about so it'll take the whole thing. There is a technological bit to it. How do we create environments, online environments? So that's what we're talking about now, where facts matter. And what is civic discourse and what is democratic discourse? This weird spongy thing that we never really thought about too much, but we now realize it's just key. It's the key force, if I'm going to use the Star Wars metaphor, that sort of informs democracy, but like very hard to define. You kind of know it's you know it when it's gone. Because suddenly you have these communities which are unable to function, but or non-communities. So how do you create online environments that are geared towards towards making that better? And we can talk about many examples, Taiwan and whatever. But then how do we then create a, a technological economy of that? Yeah, because it's not profitable to do these things. So who's going to fund it? And that's a huge part of it. You know, what is the? How do we build these environments? And obviously, people like Eli Pariser and Ethan Zuckerman are the great the great gurus of that. What worries me is that. All the gurus are in America, but the actual regulation that might help create that is going to be in Europe, and there's no gurus there, so I think we're going to cross pollinate a bit here. Right. So that's 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 those guys, but but for us, and there's a regulatory piece. So one of the big things actually that I'm going to be speaking on in Kiev, and that I'm just starting now, which is a controversial line, which is what is the legal culpability of Russian propagandists on this conflict? How do we delineate between freedom of expression, however abhorrent it is, and I'm very much and that you can pretty much say whatever you want side of things and targeted coordinated information operations which aid in the bets crimes yeah how do we find that line how do we find a language around that yeah 
Yeah. And I think the Russian provinces are a good place to start, but we saw it in Myanmar, we saw it in, uh, we see it in Mexico, the narcos, we go on and on and on. This, you know, integration of information operations into military operations, into political repressions, geared specifically created, calculated to commit crimes. And how do we start passing that apart? So there's a big regulatory piece to think about there. There's a regulatory piece to think about regulating the online space. So there's a regulatory piece. Reimagining that there's a technology piece, and then there's what I suppose I'm just a little very interested in, which is the content piece. Because however much you regulate the space, however much you, how much you regulate it, however much you you technologize it, it is going to be about people and content they create, and it will be kind of creepy if it wasn't. How do we create in very different situations? How does a journalist or a communicator or whatever this weird profession is that we're still in? How do you get up in the morning thinking what I'm doing is is having some sort of effect beyond clicks and ratings? So with the work we're doing in Ukraine, well, the Reckoning Project, my friend Gini Di Giovanni, we made a lot of materials out this last week in the Atlantic and other places. I mean, that's about connecting journalism with justice, putting lawyers and journalists together, which was very controversial when I when I raised the idea with the head of Google News. Um, who's a, a veteran AP BBC guy? He was like, "This goes." You know, he was very nice, but he was like, "This goes against his sense of journalistic ethics." As far as he was concerned, journalists and lawyers should never talk to each other. They're different professions; they're competing professions. If lawyers were to come and ask for material, yeah, from a, from journalists, they would ask for a subpoena, like go in, like you know, we're not giving you any material. We're doing the opposite. We want to give lawyers the material. We see ourselves in one single community of evidence gathering and establishing the truth and fighting for the truth. And it's not just journalists, it's journalists, kind of teachers, first responders, whoever's getting to the evidence first. How do they get that to the justice system? And then how do they reinforce the justice system by explaining to the public these stories? So look, that's a big shift away from, you know, what journalism may have thought it was doing before. What I've been thinking about a lot previously, and my US research is still focused on this, is how do you reach audiences that are not on your side. So, so I do think there's a bad tendency, both market-driven, but also often from donors, which confused me why they do this, but I don't know, they're just seem to, which, which is like when, they, when we create media or when we fund media, it's like find your audience and, and kind of milk them, you know, you found your sort of like, you know, your, your little slice of the pie. Now it's up to you to, to, to extract as much as you can from it. Which, which almost always means polarizing in some way. It almost always means creating an identity that might be quite guarded and quite um, closed to a certain extent um, for them and defining their enemies. That's just how you build these things, sadly. And, you know, I'm very excited by the idea of media or journalists to get something in the morning going, okay, how do I start connecting this audience and this audience? How do I tell the story of, let's say, Reconstruction, which is where I'm looking at US history at the moment, to audiences that are reticent about the way it's been told so far or have very strong cultural or historical or judicial barriers against listening to the story. How do I do that? How do I tell the story so they will listen to me? So so that's what I've always been very excited by and by that challenge. And and that in a way that's a very old mission. We shouldn't think that we haven't been here before. We had very similar crises at the start of the 20th century. And they were eventually overcome after two world wars, a Holocaust and 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 many other crises, but they were overcome. So when you say give up, there's things to do regulatory space, design space, innovation and media space, which make me not despair. And also the historical record, though glum in its own way, 
we've been here before. We were here with the advent of radio, where you had the same euphoria with the advent of radios you had with the advent of the internet. Very quickly, that's replaced with horror as Stalin Hitler weaponized the radio. Very similar paranoia about the power of propaganda, zombifying people. Very, very similar sort of pathologies as we have now. And then, and at the end of the day, the democratic side of things finds a way to respond through many means. With regards to your work with the truth, uh, justice, justice, truth dynamic, how do you identify who in society contains truth? Uh, and as a follow-up to this, when the truth or justice is antithetical to the ideological, institutional and or power-holding majority, how can you effectively share this truth in order to impact or make a change, uh, change in momentum? Which is so that's that's going back to I think your point about uh, we might have to just not do journalism as we've done in the past, which has tended to reflect and embody some of the institutional truths. That's all question about identity is the thing is a really good one. So you're asking how do you make sure that the justice is for everyone and not just for the, the people already advanced by the system? Is that, is that what you're asking? Uh, well, if I was going to make a big can, can, can elucidate, but I think from reading it, it's like, how do you decide who has, who holds the truth? So people have different perspectives on this and what happens when that truth is opposed to the, uh, power holding majority. So you might look at America and say, there is one truth about how America came into being, which pretty much overwrites the rights of a minority. And then if you're, if you're part of that minority, you see pretty much everything reflected in the media as being not true or certainly not reflective of your experience. And I do think that that's, we, we're grappling with that a lot at the moment, aren't we, in terms of who gets to say what is, what is true? So I think that's a fantastic question. And I, I think it's, all, it's almost like, let's take that question and think about sort of the two, the, the two branches that one could take that in. So Sean Hannity says that. Yeah, Sean Hannity, and I've watched a lot of Sean Hannity say, there is no such thing as objective truth. CBS is really biased. He'll actually use very, very good stats showing how much more CBS sort of grilled Trump than they grilled Obama. Yeah. So he'll use some truth. There's truth in it now that everyone's biased. All that's left is hardcore feeling. And in this world of darkness, lying, obfuscation, Foucauldian knowledge captured by power, he doesn't quote Foucault, but he really explains Foucault very well. There are no rules. There's just emotion. And of course, only Donald Trump can lead us through this dark, evil, biased world. It's exactly the same message that you hear on Kremlin TV, Dmitry Kislyov, again, war against any hope forever being objective. They will, they will raise perfectly you know, legitimate criticisms occasionally of Western media or the BBC or CNN and, and say, ha ha, look, that side lies. It's a world of darkness and lies, only Putin, only force. Truth is a myth, justice is a myth. Only the strong hand of a strong leader can lead us through a war of all against all. So that's, you can take this, that idea and take it that way. Or, or you can take it the other way, saying, yes, obviously truth is an emergent thing. Nobody has a monopoly on the truth, but we have certain ideas about how we might agree with what evidence is. Uh, and so like, you know, when a new truth emerges, we can sort of tentatively agree that we respect it. We don't dehumanize the other side who are bringing their ideas forward, et cetera, et cetera. My, I'm from the humanities. I, I went to film school before that I studied English lit. Uh, I'm not a social scientist. I mean, the idea for me that there would be like a rock solid truth that, that, uh, that is owed by someone, um, usually by, by, you know, somebody in the social science department is, is for me slightly horrific. So what we're really talking about are, you know, 
flora environments. I worked at somewhere called the Agora, which is some sort of reference to a very, very imperfect Greek ideal of a space where you talk to each other and listen to each other. So we're talking about communities, environments, how where truths can emerge, where people have access to it and access to a voice and you know, all these ideals of, of this woolly notion of a public sphere. So we talked about Dr. Fauci, you know, just before this as well, you know, um, you know, it sounds like, you know, it can well be that well, there is a chance that uh, the, the, you know, the, the virus may have, I don't know, Emily was saying this, I don't know this, Emily was saying there's a chance that, wait, 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 <laughs> Emily was saying, I didn't say with it, but, but there is, there is a chance that maybe the, the virus did emerge from the lab. I mean, fine, you know, these are all things that in a respectful public sphere, you can debate and, and talk about it. It doesn't become some sort of, you know. Fetish that you chop people's heads off with. Overall, as somebody from England, which has actually got a much more calcified process of access to the public sphere, America is deeply, deeply messed up. But but I kind of love the debate you guys are having here. Uh, it's such a you know, as long as people are bursting for their right to speak and tell their story and tell their American story, and yeah, it can well be there's time to split up the American story into many stories and to dilute some of these mythical sort of pressure points in American history that do feel a tiny bit kind of like uh, a little bit Soviet to me sometimes when I'm just like, you know, you know, this sort of obsession with the founding fathers and things terribly like Marx, Marx, and, Marx and Lenin, you know, that's, that's a very, that's a very healthy thing, you know, breaking up those myths and, and, and bringing in new perspectives. And as long as that's being done, and I think it largely is in the US, frankly, with, with a desire to sort of like find more facts and more truths and, and deeper meanings rather than just to say, oh, well, then nothing matters. All that matters is violence. Is there a way of doing this proactively? So in other words, is there a way of making these interventions proactively? Because we are in a very reactive field. This is something I think that particularly when it comes to disinformation, I know you and I have had this conversation separately, Peter, about the, the hunting of propaganda in some ways is always counterproductive. So what are, our, what are the chances that we can actually make interventions um, but before it comes to this, or is it just that we're working in too dynamic a, and difficult field for that? I think to many data researchers who, who say they can spot things emerging early, which, which is interesting, you know, like a bubble forming or sort of a, a community forming that's becoming more and more extreme or alternative, you know, so, 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 so there are data people who say they can see this emerging very early. I'm not a sort of a data guy that way. I, I am. Um, all our evidence, all our research shows that take something like conspiracy theories. Um, so we look at conspiracy theories in Eastern Europe and conspiracy theories, conspiracy mindsets are very popular among parts of the populations that have a, a very deep lack of sense of agency. This probably isn't, you know, huge news to anybody who's on this, on, in this session. Often you know, that's accompanied by things like civic deserts. So the lack of local communities, lack of local media. But, but really on a, on, a, on, a, on a much more fundamental level, really just feeling that you've been left behind. Um, but also that, that you don't have any way of influencing society. Um, for many reasons, Eastern Europe, there are many historical reasons. But, but we know historically that's, that is where people become very susceptible to a type of communication. Let's not call it propaganda, but let's call it communication, which will then create a false community for them, you know, a false sense of us where they can project their sense of agency and strength, often through a leader and through maybe seeing other groups as, as you know, at fault for, for their feelings and, and also towards other groups they can feel superior to. So I'm sure we'd, we'd be able to track that and see it develop, you know. I just, again, 
I don't think any of this is hard, Emily, to track and spot and anticipate. It really isn't. It's very human stuff. And then, you know, you just go to these places like, and go, oh my God, these people feel really abandoned. And, you know, there's going to be some political uh, snake or salesman is going to turn up soon. The problem isn't so much working it out. The problem is whose job is it to fix it? And what is the motivation? Because there is zero financial motivation to do this. Actually, the, the financial motivation is exactly the opposite. Right. And that's why I really worry about the US. I see brilliant people thinking about it. I see brilliant people in universities defining it. It really isn't that hard to, to, to preempt, to spot the problems before they emerge. Whose job is it? There's nobody. And, and what, all we have is like foundations doing like funding where I see like small, really worthy, tiny media. They're not going to compete with, with, what was what was it you know, with with when you just quoted Murdoch? He's an obvious villain in this. So the question for me again is is like whose job is it and who's going to pay for it? And right. in Europe, you have this idea of this should be the job of what used to be public service media. No, they will have to transform hugely to deal with this as well. Talking about other parts of the world, the the technological landscape. Saying in this this propaganda, you also mentioned protests as opposition in China. But the past seven or eight years, um, China has changed technologically so much. Um, how has that sort of changed the protest media landscape? I guess we have, you know, such su- such a difference now in terms of surveillance technologies, etc. And I guess a related question, which says, could, could you speak a, a bit more about success you've seen in Taiwan in countering missile disinformation? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you know. Case that is studying in Taiwan for them it's existential to to resist you know these sort of experiments and authoritarian information operations. So they they they, they do a lot there. But, but again, what what I'd say is the most interesting thing in Taiwan is their attempts to build resilient spaces. I think now almost the story of Audrey Tang and V Taiwan is almost is, is, is almost becomes like a parable that probably should be now debunked in some way because it's become almost too too, too well known. You know, yes, the Chi- the Taiwanese had all these groups looking for Chinese disinformation online and countering it and doing all that stuff. But what was and that was great. You know, and that showed how sort of activists could respond to a state challenge, which was very interesting. But but what was much more interesting for me in Taiwan was these attempts to build, to use tech for good and create online spaces where you which was specifically designed for um debating policy issues in a way that reached consensus and stuff. So it's not just the defensive bit, it's also creating online environments that, that, that are helpful for, for democratic processes. I mean, China, I, I mean, my chapter on China was, uh, I was there just as Xi Jinping was going full dictator. Um, he just changed the constitution um, to make himself sort of uh, leader for much longer than was originally intended. And it was sort of really, really, there was a real sense that, oh, wow, the sort of the semi-open period was over and we're entering something much darker and new. China is, is, I'm not a China expert, but, but I, I watch it from this point of view, from the point of view of propaganda and from, and also, but also from, from their vision of how information is meant to work with society. And I don't know how many of you watched the, the Chinese, the CCP 100 years celebration. This is the Chinese Communist Party had the celebration of 100 years of the Communist Party. And it was this huge show, very Soviet, dare I say. You know, it, was, it was like mass scenes from Mao's childhood. And, and you know the the civil war and you know the 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 great leap forward all, all mass scenes you know all choreographed uh, you know depicting the ideals of, of mass society I suppose but what was very interesting was the end so they go through all these these scenes of the Chinese Communist Party spectacular set pieces on this huge stage with all the Politburo watching and applauding and they get to the future 
And this huge number five descends from the roof of, of the theater. It's a huge theater. And first I thought five, it must be the five-year plan. This was like a Soviet communist thing. Yeah. You know, like, like, you know, every five years that the leaders of the communist party would say, here's the five-year plan. And everyone lived by the five-year economic plan. And it wasn't, it was 5G. The 5G was coming down and it was sort of bathing the future of China in this beauty. People were almost like praying to it. And it was like, Xi Jinping plus 5G is the future. You know, they have, well, they appear to have, you know, a vision of the future where centralization and mass control is enabled by online technology, but also kind of the two meet perfectly, as in like, in this data-driven society, you can only rule it by centralizing it. Maybe centralization didn't work in, in the 20th century because we didn't have enough data. But now that we have all the data, it's time to give it all onto the leadership because liberal democracy, look at America, it's a mess. Look at their crazy elections. Look at their crazy paralysis in Congress. Humanity can't deal with this amount of information. Humanity can't process it. The only thing that can process it is a centralized power that will desire the ideal city for you. Yes, you will give up all your freedoms, but there won't be any traffic jams. You know, the pollution will be minimal. You know, we'll find you, we'll use your data to find you the ideal job, the ideal wife, the ideal sexual position. I'm getting carried away. They didn't do that, but that sort of thing. Give us your data and give us your freedom of choice and we will decide better. Now, obviously I'm caricaturing, but, but that's kind of the idea. It's, it's, it's a, you know, I don't know how many of you have been asked to read the Dewey Lipman debates from the 1920s in the US. It's exactly the same debate all over again. Yeah. In a world of, an overabundance of information, democracy just cannot deal with it. Democracy was meant for small, you know, town halls. That was the idea that, that Walter Lippmann had, a great American columnist. And, and he would argue in the 1920s, a lot like Xi Jinping is arguing now, it's too chaotic. You've got to have an elite that makes centralized decisions, that can process the data, make sense of it. And the sun is set on your messy democracy. You may have kind of bluffed your way through the 20th century, but it's over. My sense is there is a few people in Silicon Valley who feel the same way, but, but there does seem to be an authoritarian strain in Silicon Valley as well. Again, not all of them. There's many others who aren't. There's a very interesting cycle between libertarianism that has led into authoritarianism, which is very interesting, yeah. uh, which, which, which I can barely grasp, but I kind of get it now. You know, like it, it's the only freedom that matters is private property. Who can defend private property? Only the king. That's how they seem to have got there. But but weirdly, there is this blending between libertarian thinking and authoritarian thinking, which you would think would be antithetical. But 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 sticking with, I'm not a political philosopher, uh, but this is again, and this is what interests me about propaganda, about media. It is not just the case of tactics and technology. We do get into these big questions about what is freedom? Is democracy possible? And um, sort of what is the human? That's at the end of the day is the subject of my books. Um, you know, I, I use propaganda as a way to get to the question of when are we free? When do you know that your thoughts are your thoughts? When are you actually being manipulated and when not? And when can you make decisions? And when can we make decisions as communities? So, Peter, we've kept you longer. I'm worried about you missing your plane at some point. Or uh, it's, it's all right. It's all right. I got here really early. Yeah. Yeah. It's even, even more worried about you missing your beer. Thanks very much indeed, Peter. Great to spend some time in the presence of a sweary British journalist. Always makes me feel very, um, very much at home. 
That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to the speakers, thanks to my co-founder Brian Jones, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.